Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we connect with people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Tova Lobatz, Executive Director of Strategic Partnerships for SOCAP Global. This podcast series is hosted by SOCAP Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. SOCAP Global convenes the largest and most diverse community and impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features new stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. You'll hear conversations like this at SOCAP 23, our next flagship event held in October 23 in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SoCapGlobal.com. We hope to see you there. This episode of Money and Meaning features a conversation with our partners at Corn Ferry who made this podcast episode possible with their support. Corn Ferry is a global consulting firm that works with clients to design optimal organizational structures, roles, and responsibilities. In this episode, Imogen Rose-Smith, Managing Director of Confluence Partners, connects with Kate Shattuck and Sharon Eglinski of Corn Ferry and Adam Heltzer, partner of Aries Management Corporation. They focus on sustainability and the role of the chief sustainability officer, which has never been more important as customers, investors, and employees demand that their companies play a more active role in social change. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Imogen Rose-Smith, a Managing Director with Confluence Partners. With me today is Kate Shattuck, co-founder and co-lead of the Impact Investing Practice at Corn Ferry. Sharon, Sharon Iglensky, a Corn Ferry Senior Client Partner, focused on organizational strategy and sustainability, and Adam Heltzer, Partner and Head of ESG for Aries. I'm going to have the speakers introduce themselves, so Kate, let's start with you. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm Kate Shattuck. I'm a Senior Client Partner at Corn Ferry. And I lead our ESG and impact investing practice. Corn Ferry, as you may know, is the world's global leader in talent. And my core expertise is around recruiting. And I'm very proud to have co-founded and co-led this impact investing in in ESG practice. Thanks so much for having us to the SOCAP community. Sharon, go ahead. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Sharon Igalinski. Um, I sit in the ESG and sustainability advisory practice of Corn Ferry. And as Kate said, um, we're the talent leader, um, as well as uh, doing an incredible amount of work in advisory ESG and sustainability work with clients around the world right now, especially during this challenging time. It's it's an incredibly interesting uh, area to be in. So happy to be here. And thank you, SOCAP, for this opportunity. Thank you. And last but not least, Adam. Thanks, Imogen, and thanks to the SOCAP community. Um, my name is Adam Heltzer, and I lead the ESG program at Aries Management. And we are a asset manager active in private markets. Uh, so, you know, informally, what that means is that we integrate ESG into the way that we invest, how we source deals, uh, do due diligence, how we engage with companies during an ownership period, all with the effort uh, to improve their own sustainability practices. Great, thank you. So Corn Ferry recently put out a new research report on the changing role of the Chief Sustainability Sustainability Officer. Kate, how has the role of the CSO evolved over the last few years and what has been driving that change? 
What a great question. And of course, the timing is impeccable for not only our paper, but this, but this discussion in the market more broadly. In short, it used to be that the chief sustainability officer or even the head of ESG was the first of its kind. It was, uh, I would say, even an agitator, someone who was a warrior for the environment or for diversity. And what we're seeing now in sustainability 2.0 and even 3.0 is much more of a leader, uh, someone that has much more experience with culture across the enterprise and at the at the biggest levels, someone that is very commercial and thinking about the profitability of the organization. So these are three big themes that we're seeing overall. And again, we're seeing this come out in a sustainability officer, not even 2.0, but really even a 3.0. And what would you say is the major driver of that change in the role? I think it has a lot to do with customers. I think customers are demanding that organizations are not giving just lip, lip service to sustainability, and again, in its most broad definition, that's number one. Number two, I think owners, sometimes customers are owners, they own equity in the corporation, but I think investors, whether that is in a private equity context, the limited partners, I think regulators, governments, I think that organizations are feeling this pressure, really 360, on making sure that their sustainability program is business-oriented, commercial, and talks to all of those stakeholders. And then lastly, I think that there are some leaders of companies, CEOs and board members, that understand that if they don't pay attention to, to sustainability, that they could lose a competitive advantage. And so I think the most forward thinking and proactive board members see see the 360. They see the three that 360 pressure and they would like to use it as a competitive advantage for their companies. That's a really interesting point with regards to board members and CEOs. Um, mm-hmm. Sharon, you specialize in the financial services sector. Yeah, Kate mentioned um, the importance of owners, you know, private equity, um, and also asset allocators uh, in the sort of elevated role of the CSO. Clearly, this is becoming more of an important issue for allocators. How has that impacted the sorry, ESG broadly has become and sustainability has become more important for allocators? How has that elevated importance impacted the CSO overall and what does CSOs have to do to communicate with these important stakeholders that maybe maybe they didn't have to do as much in the past? Yeah, I love the question and and I'll follow on with what Kate was saying. Um, I think that the role of the CSO is becoming more and more because of all these changes facilitator and shepherd of the sort of entire organization. And, you know, Corn Ferry, we look at sustainability as a sustainability for the enterprise. And I do think that 
Um, the role of the CSO, and Kate alluded to this, um, you know, is changing and becoming more, even more robust and well-rounded in terms of the business drivers, because um, the ESG piece of reporting and metrics, it was only the first part of the uh, the first part of the of the movement, uh, and now we're really into a situation where the CSO becomes sort of the the shepherd to explain that there is a business case that there you don't have to sacrifice profit completely um, to be a sustainable company, and with and there's stakeholder demands on more sustainability and ESG um, fulfillment, but. You know, if you think about it, interestingly, they certainly don't necessarily want to sacrifice returns. So I think what's becoming more and more interesting is that the CSO is now realizing also that how people are driving sustainability and and something that I think that was really broadly overlooked just in general over it's it's you know it was about environment it was about social justice which is so important and it was about governance and i do think now as we move forward it's becoming broader but also deeper and cso's are now getting concerned with how do we treat our people how do we cultivate our talent how do we become an employer of choice and at the end of the day what kind of initiatives and programs and work do we do to create a talent base that keeps our company sustainable, relevant, and resonating with our customers and the market every single day. And that's um, a real evolution, I think, of the CSO. You mentioned the idea that you don't have to sacrifice profit completely to be a sustainable company. This is an area where um, Harvard professor George Starofen has done a lot of work. Do you think there's also the potential for the sustainability office to become a actual driver of profit. I'm thinking of something like a company like Nike, for example, where they've really tried to move towards that. Absolutely. Um, and I can think of a few others. If you look at an organization like BBVA, um, the, absolutely. I, there are the, the more forward thinking, forward looking organizations that we're working with are looking uh, to sort of run sustainability as a business line. And for those listening, not at the at the sacrifice of all of the important directives that ESG and sustainability need to push forward, but to show, again, what better way to show that sustainability can be good for business, is good for business, than to actually delineate it as a business line and show that there are ways that you can improve the top and bottom line through sustainability. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Adam, I want to bring you into the conversation. You joined Aries as the head of ESG in 2020, and you are, I believe, the first person to have that role at the firm. A decade ago, it was unusual for a large asset management firm like Aries to have a chief sustainability officer or head of ESG. Now it's more or less a prerequisite. What, what changed and how is it important is it that you report in your role directly to Aries CEO? Yeah, thanks, Imogen. It's a it's a great question, and, and my answer is going to echo some of the things that you've you've heard. You're absolutely right. Um, a decade ago, you didn't see people in this seat, or if you did, it was a one person shop. And Aries itself actually did technically have someone leading ESG um, since 2012, but that person's mandate was quite narrow. Uh, it was only focused on private equity, which is one of our investing strategies where we have the most influence, the most access to management, the greatest ability to actually make changes. What happened in those intervening years is that all of our other business lines, our credit business, real estate, infrastructure, 
began to feel the same pressures from stakeholders that private equity had. And so when I came to Aries, my mandate was vastly expanded to cover the in entire investment platform. And importantly, Aries itself is a public company. We needed someone to interface with shareholders um, because they were uh, engaging with us on ESG topics. So what changed? You know, we hear the, the buzzword stakeholder capitalism or stakeholders in general, uh, but there's a reality to what those stakeholders needed and how their needs evolved. For example, the owners of the capital, the limited partners, um, they sort of passed by this era of ESG as an anecdote-driven thing. Hey, we as an asset manager have done this one thing this one time with this one company and began to ask for much more systematic and scaled approaches to ESG, make sure it was really embedded in the process. Uh, I mentioned our shareholders, our employee base. You know, To be an employer of choice, we had to demonstrate leadership on these topics. And if all those factors weren't enough, regulation began to come in, which made ESG reporting, transparency, disclosure um, required. And if you didn't do it and didn't do it the right way, there were actual risks you were facing as a, as a firm. Um, I think the cherry on top across all those stakeholder groups is that uh, in our field, which is quite competitive, all those factors really drove, uh, I think, the, the surge in interest. As for your, your second question about you know, reporting to the CEO, of course, this is critical. Um, ESG roles can really live in many places in an organization, public affairs, compliance, uh, investor relations. I think at Aries, it was a very deliberate choice by the executive team to say, if this was to deliver strategic value to the firm, it had to sit very closely to the person who guides the strategy of the company, and that's that's our CEO. This this is a question for the group, and if people want to pass on it, that's fine. Um, but out of curiosity, do you think that like Ken Molman joining KKR in a sort of prominent role guiding sustainability and ESG was was a game changer for the space? For sure, I, I think that KKR saw that. At the beginning, they saw that ESG impact, even corporate social responsibility, and they were one of the first movers here, had to use this as a competitive advantage. And beyond recycling programs and changing the light bulbs to LEDs, that there had to be a tie to business strategy, like Adam mentioned. And in private equity and in private companies, also similar to what Adam mentioned, they're, they're such a driver to value creation. And it was a great case study in, in the ability to show a drive to the bottom line, a drive to EBITDA, uh, and using financial metrics and tying that in with strategy. And there were some other first movers too, I think, that were, that were ahead of the curve. It's sort of interesting in light of everything that's happening to think, you know, the former head of the RNC is basically the leading light of sustainability at a massive private equity firm. Adam, sticking, to, going back to you for a second, describe what it's been like integrating ESG into a firm like Aries and sort of the skill set that you need to do that. Jane? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's, it's incredibly exciting. I didn't mention this in the intro, but I come from what I sometimes call the world of the do-gooders, uh, meaning... I spent 10 years in international development aid. I worked for the World Economic Forum for two years. Uh, and that's a community that I felt great community with in terms of, you know, in the case of the forum, our mission was uh, committed to improving the state of the world. But I think at some point I had this realization, which was to really make systemic changes, we had to go to where the system is uh, and finance business is a large part of the system. 
Um, so I think the scale of a firm like Aries, I mentioned throwing very fast, um, is a place where if you kind of get the scalability right, um, you can have an impact on the topics that matter most to businesses. So that's that's a very exciting part of the job. In terms of the skill set, you know, it sort of is like this this combination of two really important things. One is, you know, you have to inspire people. You have to have a big vision that gets people to understand what we're working towards because ESG can very easily fall into a compliance-like activity, a checklist, collecting data and disclosing it, real drudgery. So how can you get people to understand that it's worth doing, there's an importance to it without sort of explaining, here's where the firm is going, why this is valuable to the firm, and here's your role in it. Um, that big vision, of course, has to be paired with real operational orientation, execution orientation, because ESG, again, can be sort of assigned this role of fluff, um, the glossy annual report. Um, so you have to kind of demonstrate your credentials and being able to say, here's the big vision, here's how we chop that vision up into implementable work, uh, how we share the work across the firm, and just have that reputation for being people who set goals and, and achieve them. Um, these two things together are so critical because in the end, these are not roles that have massive teams. Um, you know, you're not a COO that's overseeing hundreds of people. So you have to have this ability to operate with informal authority. Um, and these are the two things I've seen work very well to make sure you're broadening the people who have to actually do the work on the front lines uh, to, to support that vision. How important is it um, to incorporate ESG milestones into compensation in some way, or is that, you know, too much of a challenge? I was just going to pop in and answer, Sharon. I um, I think it's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly challenging, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. And I think it's an iterative process. And uh, I there's a there are ways um, and measures. I mean, there, the big criticism around it is you hear. Uh, XYZ company said that they're going to do a half a percent of 1% of a third of a percent of compensation tied to sustainability goals. But I do think some start is important. And I do think if you take a step back, you know, the importance of the CSO and helping navigate what those sustainability priorities are and what can be translated into performance driven metrics is critical. And just because you can't get to the end line today doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So I think saying that you can't do it at all is, is a bit of an excuse because it's too hard. I think you have to put your stake in the ground and start somewhere. And, and don't you think, Sharon and Adam, that with the rise of data and how data is becoming more available or where you're looking at your portfolio company's data or even public company data, that in line with compensation, being able to be measurable or looking for measurable indicators of compensation tied to ESG factors, that it is getting easier. Yes? I, I, I definitely think it's getting easier. And I also think that it needs to, especially in public companies and some private as well, but um, the only real pushback you might get from senior leadership is you want me to tie my performance, some of my performance goals to sustainability goals, 
But at the same time, my organization is not structured properly, or I don't have the right people with the right skills to deliver on those goals. So I think that just goes to say it doesn't stop at the top. I think it has to be applicable and applied somewhere all along the way. And to your point, Kate, I think that it's getting easier. There's there's more data. And the only thing that would be an inhibitor is if you don't have the right people with the right skills to deliver on those, which is something we see with clients and we're working on it. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, Imogen, because it's uh, in some ways the ultimate litmus test about how serious are the executives about the work. And I think the ideal end state, of course, is that the ESG agenda is tied to business value. Therefore, the executives should, of course, uh, have incentive compensation to kind of like deliver that business value. Uh, the, the metrics, as Kate's pointing out, the data is there to actually support it. That, that's the ideal future state. I think the, the challenge that today, many companies are opting into that model without all those things necessarily in place. For example, you may have a set of sustainability goals as an executive, but there are questions around how ambitious and substantive are they really? Um, are they actually changing behavior? Are they actually providing incentives to the executives to, to, to achieve those goals? So I think the idea uh, at a future steady state is certainly worth pursuing and is critical to mainstream the work. I think we're just in a period now where we're kind of building all those pieces to enable the scalability and the integrity of that, that model to work. And, and sticking on the topic of com compensation, what kind of compensation ranges are we looking at these days for a chief sustainability officer, either at a large multi-billion dollar asset management firm or at a corporation? Well, Imogen, I think that the biggest piece about compensation, whether in the last 18 months, is just the velocity of compensation across markets, across geographies, up and down the organization. It has has been reset. So um, we just published actually our our compensation pulse survey that said baseline last year we saw a three to four percent base salary increase. And again, this was across geographies and across roles. And then this year similar increase across geographies, across roles. So base salaries are increasing across the board. I think in CSOs and even in broader ESG and sustainability, we've seen a, uh, we've seen two or three big changes. One is there's a tie to performance and again for financial services companies or public companies the the performance component is tied with corporate goals, stock price, equity. So there definitely is a, a more performance culture. And this is also even X financial services firms. So I'm not just speaking about a financial services type company. And the third, uh, the third component of, of value, what I would say is evaluation are these culture metrics like Adam talked about. You heard him talking about communication and stakeholder skills, leadership as teams are growing, um, how leaders are enabling their teams to perform, and also how they are helping the whole of the business commercialize or employ an ESG strategy or a sustainability strategy. So it's not just about a narrow set of metrics that that just the CSO is being uh, judged against. 
And I think those are, those are overall really positive trends. And, and again, I think it's also consistent with the rest of, with the rest of the C-suite and, and then also down and in corporations, it's very consistent with base salaries just increasing across the board. So Kate, Cornferry helped in the process of recruiting Adam to Aries. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that process and what specifically you were looking for? Well, I wish you could see my smile because when Adam answered a question before about uh, a little bit about his role, uh, I think the only thing he left out was Adam. Didn't you also weren't you also a farmer at at least two times in your life? An organic farmer, maybe. <laughs> yeah, in Spain and in Ireland and Israel. It's true. Yes. So three times. Maybe. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe. So uh, Imogen, that uh, being a farmer was not actually on the position description, <laughs> but a, a but a couple things. But a couple things were. I I think the biggest is this tie to the strategy of the organization and and Aries I thought was very special in that they saw the opportunity to make this a strategic part of their strategic value proposition not just for private equity but the platform so someone had to keep pace with the organization's overall strategy and be able to communicate to the C-suite and the board on a strategic level the second and Adam I think you alluded to this that that Aries was looking for, and I think many of our clients looking for analytical abilities and the and in particular the ability to look at data in a way that works for many different businesses, not just a, a narrow slice of the business. And then lastly, it is around the humility and empathy to work with different business owners different leaders of business lines, PL leaders, and meet them where they are. And, and in Adam's uh, conversation, I heard, I heard empathy and then the ability to meet those folks where they are and then get them excited about the journey. And, and that's really stakeholder skills. We used to say uh, also th there's this X factor and it's the MacGyver factor, the one that you can, you, you've that humility to do your own slides, but also the creativity just to get it done. And Adam, I, I would say in your farming experience, I did take a little bit of that MacGyver. Uh, you have the, that MacGyver X factor and, and you know, coupled with humility. Yeah. You should see how, uh, how impressive it was for me to pull potatoes out of the dirt in Spain, Kate. Very, very impressive. So maybe not all that hard. Yeah. I want to build on one thing you mentioned there about the influencing the stakeholder engagement part, because I did join at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, my first day of work at Aries was April 1st, 2020. Uh, and I thought to myself, how am I possibly going to do this job? Um, you know, I'd spoken to my wife uh, after taking the area job and said, for this next year, it's going to be tough. I have to travel. I got to meet the firm. It's a global firm, um, but it'll be an investment of the first year. And then we'll kind of moderate. And then of course, all travel globally was shut down. And I thought to myself, for such a horizontal function, highly networked function, it's gonna be impossible to build the relationships and rapport you need to mobilize people and act on an agenda. The reality that we all discovered, of course, after that was that Zoom is actually great for that. Um, and I think for any CSO, uh, certainly in the case of Aries, 
the ability to find ways to connect with people, build rapport easily, whether by Zoom, hybrid, in person, and all those different flavors is critical, um, especially for a firm like Aries that's growing so fast. Uh, when I joined, we were 1,200 people. Now we're 2,600. Um, you know, the next few years, we'll see that grow even further. And so that ability to kind of you know, move across different teams, different people, and build that network is, is, is so critical. So speaking of uh, communications, um, Sharon, it's a sort of a well-established view that um, good corporate governance at pub particularly publicly traded companies centers on having good proactive communications with investors, including sort of ESG-minded allocators, as well as, you know, potential activists and other kinds of investors. What are the risks associated with not having a clearly communicated ESG strategy from a legal, business, or reputational level? I, that's a, Imogen, it's a great question, in this, especially with what's going on right now. And, and we have a few clients going through this situation uh, at, at this time. I think, first of all, great communication, effective communication is is essential to great corporate governance in general. I think we can, we would all agree to that. Different levels of communication, different audiences. But if you tell your story and you narrate the, the, the narrative, if you do the narrative, then someone else is not going to fill in the blanks for you. So I think it's really important um, as a, a defensive, preventative, and just good business prudence to always be able to tell the story and pull together. No one is going to be able to pull together all that you're doing and why you've chosen to do it better than the organization itself. So I think that's proactively an important point. I think defensively, if you think about um, institutional shareholders or you think about um, activists, um, activists going back to T. Boone Pickens, activists are there in some ways to regulate the markets, to keep uh, directors on their toes, and in some ways to obviously uh, find ways to exploit um financial opportunities and return opportunities. So if you look at all of that, um, what better way to, to stave them off or have the discussion and be able to say, I may not be doing it the way you think I should be doing it, but I've articulated what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why we're doing it. So now talk to me about what the issues with, with that plan is. And I think that's really critical because you, um, you, you get the message out there. I think one important thing that, that I have discovered over the course of the last year and a half in particular is that in sustainability and ESG does not mean being all things to all people. Obviously, you have to respond to the regulation. You have to do what's right for your company. The CSO um, is the sustainability and business strategy animate. Um, there are so many important pieces to this that are unique to the organization that are reactive and proactive and responsive and, and really um, strategic. And I do think that a huge rumor, misnomer, misunderstanding in the market is that every organization has to um, meet the demands of every single stakeholder in the way that that stakeholder wants it to be um, met. And that's just not realistic. And that's just not the case. So again, narrating the story, pulling all the impact that an organization is having together through the eyes of the audience you're communicating to is the best defense 
um, and proactive way to address business and legal risk and employee engagement risk. I mean, the more that you communicate what you're doing and why you're doing it, and that communicates externally and internal to the organization, the more people understand why your strategy and how it ties to your, your business and how it aligns with executives and everything just fires on all cylinders much more effectively. So, so building on and keeping in mind that question, how do, do companies and how does the chief sustainability officer navigate the sort of current anti-ESG slash anti-woke backlash that I that we're seeing? So I'm thinking of companies like Disney, where they came out and sort of did the right thing from an ESG and business argue business perspective on LBGTQ plus rights and all of a sudden it blew up in their faces and this politicization that we're seeing of these issues that brings in a whole new set of questions and quandaries. I think it's a it's a, it's it's important. It show it's it's important to see. Number one, um, we all have to look at um, why issues are being brought up, and it's a, sometimes it's really a question of interpretation. So those companies need to obviously get on it, and the CSO's navigation of that is is to really be able to put a face to it and 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 understand and facilitate within the organization. You know how do we respond to that? Because it's just because somebody accuses an organization of handling something a certain way doesn't mean that that's how it was intended. And sometimes outcomes are different than intention. So I think it's it's definitely facilitating what the intention and what the outcome is and also how it'll be perceived by the public. And that's a, that's a really difficult job. And I think very um, important for the CSO to work with investor relations, communications, really showing that the CSO has got to be in partnership with all CEO, COO, all aspects of the organization, especially on earnings calls with the CFO. I mean, these are all important pieces and you're gonna get um, accusations of being too far one way or too far the other. And everybody loves to call it, um, align it with a political situation, but sometimes the CSO, incredibly gets in and says, you know what, let's look at why this is done and why we did it and what it really was intended to achieve. And then finally, this is a question for the group. Then on the flip side, there's obviously a lot of concern by a whole bunch of stakeholders from consumers to investors and others about greenwashing. What What is the responsibility of the chief sustainability officer to ensure that greenwashing isn't happening? And then what, if anything, can they do to sort of communicate authentically what a company is doing. I'll take a first jump at this one, Imogen. You know, Kate mentioned this 18 month period where interest in ESG and ESG roles has really exploded. And I think that fed um, a lot of aspirational language, you know, organizations that for the first time were on the map, they wanted to demonstrate their credentials, their bona fides in the space, and that lent itself to very lofty aspirations. That dust is now settling. There's increased skepticism naturally about those commitments, those aspirations. Um, so that's where I think this, this greenwashing has come from. How to combat it? You know, it's going to sound really simple, but the strange thing is that it's, it's, um, it's not that revolutionary. Um, first of all, setting goals that are actually rigorous and substantive. And the good pressure test on this one is that if a CSO imagines talking to a client or an employee and explains in real terms what the goal actually means, would that person nod their head and say, wow, that's great. That's actually a meaningful advance and meaningful impact. It strengthens our business. That's one very simple thing. Set goals that are actually substantive and rigorous. Uh, the second, very simple, report on it. Be transparent. 
to here's what we were trying to do. Uh, here's how we did against it. A very big trust building, credibility uh, building measure. And the last part, which is tied to that, is that I think that firms have to get more comfortable admitting failure, uh, because I think the work of the CSO or ESG in general can tend to be a parade of good stories. Uh, and the reality is that people may have a natural skepticism of all you hear about is the amazing successes and impact. You build a lot more trust and credibility with, with others if you actually say, hey, we made a bunch of strides forward. At the same time, here are areas where we tried to, didn't meet the mark, and here's what we learned from it and how we're going to improve for the next round. I think that's great. I, what I hear a lot is you have to be humble and even in and unapologetic that you have ambitious goals. And the key over and over again is a tie to business strategy. And if this is going to help our consumers, this is going to help our brand, this is going to help our shareholders or our owners and profitability, I think you can be unapologetic in in sharing ambitious goals and transparent reporting on your wins and your misses. And I, I think it does take, uh, I think it takes a brave leadership team uh, and partnerships, really, not just the C, not just the chief sustainability officer, but the chief sustainability officer must work at the level of culture in an organization to put these plans, processes in place, and have some really great partnerships from the board, from the CEO, across the C-suite, so they can execute in a way that really helps the, helps the company and all their stakeholders win in sustainability. What do you think, Imogen? No, I, I was I was wondering if, um, Sharon, if you wanted to weigh in at all there as, as well, or you feel like it was sort of covered by your previous remarks. Yeah, I mean, I think it was covered. The only thing I would add is that once again, it's um, the definition of what a company is doing and sort of how it matches up to what the market perceives is just the disconnect there. It's just important. And I agree with everyone on the issue of there, there's aspirational, motivational and 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 creational um, parts of of. of commitments. And at the end of the day, um, companies should be feel free and be allowed to say, here's what we're doing. That's the only way you make progress is pushing things forward and, and making progress. You have to crack some eggs and, and make some failures. So I think that the, the market needs to become more receptive to that before moving immediately to greenwashing, which is really alleging misleading. And I, and as long as there's not that element of misleading, misleading your investors or the public, I think that's the most important piece here. There's the intent. Good points. Well, thank you everyone for, for sharing your insights today. I think it's been a useful and informative conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you are inspired by the conversation and interested in getting more involved with the SOCAP community, join us at SOCAP 23 in October. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SOCAPglobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October. Be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our next episode's release.